Preparing to testify on attorney's fees is not something you do the night before you're going to testify in trial. Get started early. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, attorney Holly Draper. We're excited to welcome Mary Evelyn McNamara as our guest today on the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Mary Evelyn is a partner at the family law firm of Rivers McNamara in Austin. Her practice involves primarily complex family law matters at the trial and appellate levels. Mary Evelyn is board certified in family law and a fellow in the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. She's also on the Family Law Council for the State Bar of Texas and is the chair of the council's appellate committee. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Holly. So let's start with a little bit of background information. Can you tell our listeners how you got started in family law? Well, it was a matter of being at the right place at the right time and also some networking ahead. After I had clerked for the Third Court of Appeals in Austin, I was to join a firm in Austin called uh, Brown McCarroll. It's merged into another firm since then. But I knew I wanted to be a litigator, and I had met the head of family law section, Ricky Rivers, and had told her I wanted to be a litigator. It was unusual, by the way, still is for big law firms to have a family law section. But the week I started, there was a family lawyer who was leaving the section to become an associate judge. Ricky asked if I would help out in the family law group, and I was hooked the first day. The work was fascinating, and I knew I wanted to represent people. I knew I wanted to represent people uh, as compared with companies, and so it, it turned out to be a great fit. So you're obviously not still at that firm now as you're at your own, you have your own firm with somebody else. So can you describe how you got to be where you are today? Sure. I didn't know it at the time, but it turned out that working with Ricky Rivers was about a six-year job interview. And after that six-year job interview, uh, I was thrilled when she asked me to be her partner in the new firm that we formed, Rivers McNamara. Uh, we struck out on our own on March 1st, 2011, and just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. So we must be doing something right. Uh, Congratulations along, on that. Thank you. Along with that, I've worked to hone my craft in family law. I wanted to continue to deepen my knowledge. And one thing I did along the way was become board certified in family law, which I would recommend to anyone who is interested in deepening their knowledge and honing their craft in family law. So in your bio, I mentioned that you're on the Family Law Council of the State Bar of Texas. For anyone who doesn't know what that is, can you explain what the council is and what you all do? Sure. The council is the governing body of the family law section of the state bar. It has the executive committee uh, and then also members on the council who serve in five-year terms uh, who do committee work such as the appellate committee you talked about, legislative committee, uh, which is a very hardworking group, and publications committee. Y'all, uh, I'm sure everyone has seen the Texas Family Law Practice Manual. That's product of the publications committee. And so 
the council does the work on behalf of the family law section of the state bar. Also, the head of the council each year meets with other heads of bar sections and so advocates on behalf of the family law section as, as the head of that group. So today we're here to talk about an issue that is very commonly dealt with in family law cases, which is recovering attorney's fees. So there's one particular Supreme Court decision, Rormus Venture versus UTSW DVA Healthcare LLP. Can you tell us why that particular case is so important? Sure. This case came out in 2019, and the site is 578 Southwest 3rd or 60. Uh, the court compared two models for recovery of attorney's fees for attorney's fees. It's the Arthur Anderson method and the Lodestar method, and clarified that when a court is going to be determining an attorney's fee award, it starts with the Lodestar method. And I'll, I'll talk about the Lodestar method in a minute, but I want to give a, a brief background about what happened in that case, because uh, how this person testified about fees, I've heard many times in trials, and uh, it's not going to suffice anymore. He talked about his years of experience, his hourly rate, uh, what the reasonable amount would have been but that his fees were more than double because of searching through millions of emails, reviewing hundreds of thousands of documents, lots of depositions, a summary judgment, and all of this work caused fees to double. The Texas Supreme Court reversed it, determining that the fee was general and conclusory, devoid of any real substance to support a fee award. The lawyer didn't explain how much time was spent on a task categories of tasks. It's unclear uh, whether he even included in his testimony all the tasks performed. He didn't attempt to introduce billing records into evidence or testify about the details of his work. Here I'll get to the Lodestar method, uh, which is you determine the fees to be awarded by multiplying the reasonable number of hours spent working on the case by a reasonable hourly rate. And because the court could not determine the reasonable number of hours spent times a reasonable hourly rate, uh, the fee award was reversed. He just testified about a, a general amount and said, gosh, it took a lot to get to this amount. Okay, so in terms of proving a case now for attorney's fees, what evidence do we need to have in order to have any hope of recovering our attorney's fees? Well, of course, you want your fee agreement. And although Rormus included that a billing bills are not required, they are strongly urged. And of course, one issue that comes up when you're talking about introducing your bills into evidence is, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want my entire bill billing information to be introduced because it's going to have attorney-client privileged information and work product privilege information. And some redaction is okay, by the way. And this takes me to a case that I read about recently 
that involved a dispute between two inventors of systems for filling and sealing recreational water balloons. Now that's a case that's gonna catch your attention. I know it's not a family <laughs> law case, but um, you know, who knew that we were gonna have disputes about water balloon filling systems. Anyway, this case out of Dallas last October, KI, KBIDC versus Zuru Choice upheld the redaction of bills and acknowledged that attorney invoices are routinely redacted uh, to protect attorney client and work privileges. Even with the redactions there, the billing entries listed the attorney who performed the task, the date, the attorney's billing rate, length of time to complete the task, and a description of the task, except uh, excluding any privileged material. That was redacted and that was okay. It was sufficient to apply the Lodestar method, even with those redactions. Well, that's really good to know because I've been hearing that now we can't redact our bills and that it was really going to be a problem of how do you balance including enough information in the bill so the client knows what they were being billed for and so that a court can tell if it was a reasonable amount of time for that particular task while still not waiving privilege or putting too much information that you don't necessarily want the other side to see. Well, that's a, that's a balancing act. Because our, you know, we have many levels of communications to our clients, including the bills. They want to know what are we doing working on their case. So you balance including what you're working on, uh, keeping in mind what you can redact. If, if you say prepare for trial in your bill, well, what were you doing? Preparing for trial can include any number of things. You, so you might deepen that description and say interviewing witnesses, preparing a, a motion that's going to be required in trial, working on identifying exhibits. You can deepen your description there. And at least in, in my judgment, I don't believe you need to redact that kind of information. But if you have, you have talked with client, that's a task that takes time, but you're gonna to wanna to redact talk with client regarding possibility of hiring an expert witness, talk with co-counsel about, and then some specific research task that might be done, consult with a potential expert witness. Now that's gonna be work product privilege and you don't want to include your consulting uh, with Ms. Jones about possibly being a parental alienation expert, for example. So uh, in, in all of those, you can still you can still convey to the client what you're doing, but have room for redaction of the privileged information. So in terms of fee agreements, I generally don't see attorneys admitting fee agreements into evidence when they're proving up attorney's fees. Is that absolutely necessary or is it enough for the attorney to testify that I'm being paid X dollars an hour and here's my bills? That's interesting because I, I generally do see fee agreements being admitted into evidence when proving up attorney's fees. Uh, of course, no one's going to dispute that the client has retained the attorney for the representation. Uh, so I don't think a fee agreement is absolutely necessary, but uh, I, would, I would consider that belt and suspenders 
to have the evidence in the record that the client and the attorney have in, in, entered into a contract of representation. One of the things as I was doing a little bit of research about this issue that I came across was that attorneys need to explain why all entries were reasonable and necessary. Obviously, in a final trial of a big case, there are going to be a lot of billing entries. To what extent can you condense that down? How detailed do you need to be to meet that burden? Well, as you're preparing your testimony, you're going to have some high level areas as, as you do your case review. As you said, if you're getting into a going to trial on a highly contested case, there are going to be lots of billing entries, but condensing it down to, did you have multiple temporary orders hearings? How many depositions were in the case? Were there multiple depositions requiring a significant amount of preparation for each one? Did uh, the opposing party file multiple motions that required multiple responses? Were there law, not legal issues that required more research than usual? Uh, was the case fairly straightforward or did it have, for example, uh, a novel issue in regarding custody? Did it have a novel issue regarding uh, uh, some sort of characterization? Uh, and was there something particularly complex such as did it require a lot of document management and contact with the forensic accountant for a, a complex tracing? You can you can zoom out and, and think more high level as you're looking back on the case, which you're going to be doing as you prepare your testimony. A lot of times in family law, we we have interlocking cases with one client, but there may be multiple different types of things happening at once. For example, if we have a client in a custody modification and then someone files an enforcement during that suit. To what extent do we need to separate out those bills or do we need to identify whether a particular billing entry goes to enforcement or modification or both, or can we lump them all together? Well, I don't recommend lumping them all together. I think the best practice is when you are seeking fees under different statutory schemes to segregate your, your billing entries between, uh, for example, seeking fees in a SAPSER under Chapter 106 of the Family Code versus seeking fees under Chapter 157 for an enforcement. Otherwise, if the, if the time, unless it is so intertwined, which is, it can be an issue, but unless the issues are so intertwined, if the entries are not segregated for the purposes of seeking fees, that can be reversed on appeal because the Court of Appeals is not able to determine well, what part of this fee, these fees were for the SAPs or what part was for the enforcement. And in fact, I was encountering that issue recently in a case that ended up settling, but I was looking at it did in, in, in fact include a SAPs or an, an enforcement. And I was going through and in, in, in preparation for my testimony, segregating those fees. So you're segregating them kind of on the back end. You're not billing them to two different matters along the way. Actually, in that case, it was segregation on the front end on a single matter in which the billing entries were, were separate. 
for enforcement versus uh, the SAPs. Okay, that makes sense. So you just mentioned preparing for attorney's fees portion of, uh, of a trial. What do you do to prepare prior to your testimony? Well, first and foremost, Rormus, Rormus suggested that the agree, there be an agreement between the attorneys before trial as to the amount of fees to avoid protracted, protracted fee disputes. So I suggest talking with opposing counsel to see if you can get a stipulation about the reasonable and necessary fees. Not that anyone is agreeing that the other side should get fees, but that uh, the fees that each side has are reasonable and necessary. Stipulate as much as possible ahead of time to avoid those disputes. Uh, we talked about good billing practices. I think going along the way with good billing practices on segregating different uh, statutory schemes for getting fees, writing your bills, uh, having your billing entries requiring as minimal redactions as possible, having ready for trial two sets of bills, one redacted and one unredacted uh, for the judge to review in camera, knowing the rates in your locality, uh, knowing that your fee, your billing rate is reasonable and necessary, outlining your testimony as in an affidavit and, and even preparing an affidavit, drilling down to satisfy the Arthur Anderson factors and getting it going sooner than later. Preparing to testify on attorney's fees is not something you do the night before you're going to testify in trial. Get started early. And also, I, I talked about the concept of a case review. I find it really helpful going through my billing entries as I'm preparing for my testimony to also get a uh, review of what has happened in the case. I think that's very helpful just in general in preparing for trial. And remember the basics, you must testify, you must present evidence that your fees are reasonable and necessary. There was a recent case out of, a family law case out of the Dallas Court of Appeals in which the about $77,000 fee award was reversed in part because the lawyer did not testify that the fees were reasonable and necessary. And also the billing records were insufficient in that case in that, or some of the people on the bills they were not identified by name and they were not identified by hourly rate. And so it was impossible to determine who was doing what task. And by the way, that case is in the interest of ML uh, out of the Houston 14th, excuse me, Houston 14th in January. With getting reversed because the attorney didn't testify about it being reasonable and necessary, is just using those buzzwords sufficient or does an attorney need to go beyond that? And if so, what, what did they do? Well, you go back, you go back to the Arthur Anderson factors. And um, I'm, I don't have the Arthur Anderson factors memorized, by the way, to just rattle off the top of my head. But time and labor required, the novelty and difficulty of the questions involved, the skill required to perform the services, uh, the likelihood that the acceptance of particular employment will preclude other employment, be customarily charged in the locality. That's what I was talking about. Know your rates in your in your area. There is a lawyer in Austin who 
routinely does surveys of the Austin area family lawyer rates and circulates those. And I find that incredibly helpful. Uh, the amount involved in the results obtained, time limitations, na nature and length of professional relationship, experience of the lawyer, uh, that basically you, you have much more than I think my fees are reasonable and necessary. If you just testified to that, then uh, it's, it's not going to be sufficient. You want to testify about what was the reasonable amount of time required to perform these services and what is the reasonable hourly change. And, and so, no, uh, just I think it's reasonable and necessary is obviously conclusory without anything to back it up. So sometimes you may need to hire an outside expert for addressing attorney's fees issues. When do you think that is necessary? And what can outside expert offer different from the attorney testifying as an expert, which is the norm? Well, first, uh, can your client bear this cost? Can your client afford to have someone else testify? I, if I were hiring an outside expert, I would want a, uh, a family lawyer in my locality who has been practicing for a while, who is familiar with rates, familiar with the time it takes uh, on a case. And, and it can be beneficial to have an experienced family lawyer to testify as compared with the uh, trial lawyer directly representing the client. Um, and it can also free up the attorney who's preparing for trial to prepare for trial. What I just went through as far as uh, some elements of preparing attorney's fees testimony takes time. It takes a lot of time. And so freeing up the trial attorney to concentrate on witnesses and evidence other than the attorney's fees can be very helpful. Again, if the client can afford it. And I think the fact that it takes a lot of time to do it right is uh, another balancing act here on what are the odds of actually recovering attorney's fees in this case? Is it worth investing that much time to try and prove them up if your judge isn't likely to ever award them? Well, very true. Very true. But, uh, you know, the old saw, if you don't ask, uh, you don't know. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely a balancing act. I'm not, of course, I'm not going to put $5,000 in preparation fees to seek to recover $5,000 in attorney's fees that have been incurred. I mean, I think that's kind of a silly example, but still, you, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis, of course. And uh, something I am routinely saying to prospective clients and clients is the norm is uh, each person's going to be ordered to pay his or, own, his or her own attorney's fees. So of course it's a, a balancing act. What about interim attorney's fees? And you know, in a divorce case, if somebody is seeking interim attorney's fees and potentially in another type of case as well, does that change what you have to do to prepare? Because obviously we're talking about future fees and how much the fees are gonna be required to get us from hearing to final trial. Yes, 
yes. And of course, interim attorney's fees are crucial in cases in, in which, uh, for example, one person has the purse strings and the other person does not. And uh, say it's a, a SAPSER as compared to a divorce case, and one person may not be able to have uh, sufficient representation without interim attorney's fees. Know your judge, of course, what are the facts of the case and what's your client's situation. But in a SAPSER, for example, if you are, my interpretation is if you are seeking prospective, forward-looking future attorney's fees, you still need to have a, a case budget that you're testifying about as far as here's what I anticipate will be needed in this case. If, if there's another temporary orders hearing, if we're going to be deposing parties, if we foresee there's going to be an expert witness deposed, are there novel legal issues that are going to need to be researched, which I, I know you know about, Holly, as far as uh, the CJC case, um, that, that if you have a case with some novel legal issues, it's going to require a lot more time than a fairly straightforward SAPSER. And so my best practice would be develop your case budget. Who's the timekeeper? What's the person's rate? What uh, is, how many hours is it going to take for various tasks for getting interim attorney's fees instead of, well, your honor, uh, based on my experience, uh, the fees in this case are gonna be $25,000. I don't expect that's going to be sufficient to uh, get in on attorney's fees. One of the issues we deal with a lot, particularly in Collin County and Denton County, is our temporary orders hearings are so short. We're limited to 20 minutes aside or 30 minutes aside. And when you have such a short amount of time, it's really hard to devote very much of that to the issue of attorney's fees. I'd, I'd prepare a summary. I just have a summary of the case budget. Your Honor, uh, my testimony would be that the fees are reasonable and necessary, uh, taking into account in, you know, a, a minute and, and then introduce your summary into evidence. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that with those time limitations, y'all are working with summaries all the time. Yeah, that, that's a great idea. I like that. So kind of along the same lines of interim attorney's fees, another issue we deal with is appellate attorney's fees. And I don't think Wormus really addresses appellate attorney's fees, but how do you go about recovering those and planning for asking for those? Well, let's go back to our water balloon case. Uh, Zuru Toys is obviously my new favorite case since it's uh, water balloon filling devices. Uh, in that case, even though the trial fees incurred were upheld, the appellate attorney fees were reversed. And the reason is the testimony was only a lump sum amount of fees. For example, your honor to uh, handle the appeal at the court of appeals, it'd be $35,000. That, that was reversed because it didn't have a reasonable hourly rate with a reasonable number of hours for that task. So 
uh, I would break that down into, uh, for example, it, it would be X amount of dollars to review the record at X hourly rate times X number of hours, and then just break it down to, to prepare the brief, to prepare the reply brief if we're going to have a reply brief, to prepare and present oral argument if there's going to be oral argument, but including, again, the, the number of hours times the hourly rate. Uh, because again, as with the example of interim attorney's fees, a lump sum without a breakdown of the task rate and time, it's not going to be sufficient. There's also a, a case following Roar Moose called Yowl, Y-O-W-E-L-L, uh, that goes into proving uh, appellate attorney's fees after Roar Moose. So if you, is there any way of recovering attorney's fees from the appellate court or is your only option to have asked for them in the trial court prior to a final judgment? Well, you can certainly uh, request attorney's fees at the appellate court level, but best practice is to uh, prove up your prospective appellate attorney's fees in the trial court. Uh, and and then have what you hope, of course, for is a prospective fee for prevailing on appeal that is already in the trial court's judgment. All right, one more topic here. What are some tips you have for cross-examining an attorney on the issue of attorney's fees? Get those fees down and out, as in. Uh, get them reduced or get them excluded entirely. The first thing I'll say is if the other side has put on very general testimony that's conclusory, that was reversed and along the lines that was reversed in Rormus, be quiet. Don't drill down and say, gosh, you didn't give enough testimony. Let me, let's drill down and help you out to see if we can really flesh this out for you. No, just be quiet and move on. Look over your uh, opposing party's bills. Have in mind areas that you want to inquire about. Was there overbilling? Were there uh, two people, for example, doing the same work? Are the hours out of proportion to the task? For example, if the case started out with a straightforward petition for divorce that, that shouldn't take that much time. And the time entry is 10 hours to prepare the petition for divorce. You wanna drill down on that uh, and, and poke holes in uh, the reasonable amount of time it would take for various tasks. And then uh, again, cross-examine on the Arthur Anderson factors as uh, to just go through and demonstrate unreasonableness. How does Wormus impact attorneys who offer flat fee arrangements for family law matters? Well, lawyers who, again, a best practice tip is lawyers who uh, have flat fees should still keep billing records to satisfy the Lodestar method the reasonable hourly rate times the reasonable amount of time to complete the task. 
have in in your billing records, even if you're not providing to them to the client, keep good records of who was the timekeeper, what was the rate, what was the task performed, what was the time to complete the task, and then the date performed. That way, for a party seeking attorney's fees under the flat fee arrangement, those records would still be available for uh, preparation of fees and also introducing those records into evidence. Certainly seems to defeat the purpose of doing flat fee arrangements because I think attorneys no, I hate to bill. <laughs> I get it. Uh, you would hope in most flat fee arrangements that you wouldn't be headed to trial uh, seeking seeking those fees. That it would be a an uncontested matter that was amicable from beginning to end. So one last question I'd like to ask everyone on our podcast. If you could give one piece of advice to young lawyers, what would it be? It's hard to narrow it down to one piece of advice. I'd like to give about five or six, but the one piece of advice, (laughs) the, the first piece of advice I would say is get a mentor or more than one mentor. Uh, people who are successful in their practices as attorneys did not get that way by themselves. They have mentors along the way, whether they've been practicing six months or they've been practicing 40 years, they still have mentors along the way. The second thing I would say is to take care of yourself physically and mentally. This profession can take a lot out of us, especially in the area of family law with the types of disputes that people bring to us. Engage in healthy ways to maintain your health because there are a lot of there are a lot of demands and unfortunately for attorneys, uh, both mental health issues, and substance abuse issues are higher than they are in the general population. And so remaining healthy is crucial. Agreed, excellent advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think, uh, I know I learned a lot about some changes I need to make in my attorney's fees uh, testimony and hopefully all our listeners will pick up some good nuggets of information too. And so thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Polly. The Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.